Psalm 45 on page 802. Um, our sermon text this morning has to do with uh, marriage, and Psalm 45 is a psalm that speaks prophetically of the, the king who is also a bridegroom um, who will come and delight in his bride, and it's a, it's a really fascinating psalm in terms of its typology and um, uh, the way that it points forward to Christ and the church. Um, so Psalm 45, it's on page 802, and um, let's pray responsively together. I'll pray the portions that are in plain print. Y'all respond with the parts that are in bold. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been appointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Oh, listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift, and of wealth will seek your favor. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout your land. Indeed, Heavenly Father, this morning we give you thanks um, for your um, eternally begotten Son who took upon flesh and was made man in order that he might gain for himself a bride. And Father, this morning we are grateful to be um, part of that bride, um, to be the bride of Christ, um, assembled again this morning on the Lord's Day um, for worship that we might again meet um, with our bridegroom, um, the one who comes to us. Um, the one who always comes to us by his spirit um, to nourish and strengthen and care for us and serve us, Father. And we're thankful for the ways in which he, um, he does those things, the way in which he is always faithful. And we pray this morning, even as we um, go through the Sunday school hour, that you be preparing our hearts um, for his coming. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends, I think you have a handout. Um, I assume there are others in the, in the back. Um, if you didn't get one. Um, we are continuing our series on the Human Sexuality Report put out by our General Assembly um, several years ago. And today we come to statement number nine, which is on identity. Identity. Um, 
before we jump into that, um, any questions or things to follow up on? Two weeks ago, we talked about impeccability, the impeccability of Christ and Christ's inability to sin. Any comments or questions about that? Yeah, James. Yeah, so James is asking why did they address that issue in particular in the context of this report. Um, I, I think, I mean, I don't know the answer for sure, but I would say my suspicion is that the way that impeccability is linked to sanctification, I think, um, is probably um, their answer to that. The, 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 if, if we believe in an impeccable Christ, a Christ who, is, um, who was incapable of sin um, because of his inherent holiness as the Son of God, um, our union with him, I think, takes on a different kind of flavor, um, that he not only um, overcame sin in his life um, and was the sort of superhuman in that sense, um, but he actually came from the outside in um, to our flesh and our nature and our experience. And so our union with him um, in his inherent holiness um, that he um, always had and never relinquished and never moved away from, um, I think it, it gives our, our the, the trajectory of our sanctification um, a, a bit more of a kind of uh, appropriate um, confidence that, that God can and will indeed make us holy um, because of our union with his son. I, that's my assumption, um, but I don't, I don't know the answer for sure. Did you have a follow-up? Looks like you got... Sure. Maybe you've Yeah. Reading. Yes. Uh, so that's kind of what, what I would have thought, but I also yeah. like the confidence of the apostles to um, explicate it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a great point, James, and maybe that's part of the rationale, too, for the committee to put it in there is that James is pointing out that that verse um, in Hebrews that talks about Jesus being. Um, being able to sympathize with us and our weakness because he was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin, that that is a verse that can be and has been abused in different ways. Um, and um, I was talking to uh, uh, Donovan actually earlier before the Sunday School Hour about um, that novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, um, which then was made into a movie um, um, by, uh, who is that? Um, somebody famous, I can't remember. Uh, what's that? Uh, no, no, the, the director. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, so anyway, so that, and that movie, I think, is one that does not care. I've never read the book or seen the movie, but my understanding is that that's a, uh, a piece of art that is not careful in terms of the way that it deals with Jesus' temptations. And, and so James is saying that partly, perhaps, that emphasis on impeccability is to help us have appropriate guardrails as we think about 
what it means that Jesus was tempted as we are. Um, so yeah, that's certainly, yeah, that's certainly a possibility as well. Anything else? Yeah, Donovan. Yes. 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 That is a huge comfort. And I think, I think theologically that's um, something that we will have to think about. Um, and uh, as you think about this impeccability debate, if it's something you're still wrestling with in your mind, that is another, I think, reason for believing in the impeccability of Christ. Because otherwise you would have to say that he, his nature changed in some fundamental way, that, that when he was incarnate before the death and resurrection and ascension, he was capable of sin, but now, I mean, I think I don't think any Christian would say that Christ is now capable of sin, right, in glory. And certainly we don't want to say that um, in the new heavens and new earth after the resurrection, um, we will be capable of sin. We want to, we want to be impeccable <laughs> at that point, right? Um, we want to be without um, not only sin, but, but even the capacity for sin. And so I think that's another reason to believe in um, the impeccability of Christ, even in his incarnation, is because otherwise you have to say that at one time, he was without capacity for sin before his incarnation. Then he became capable of a sin in his incarnation. Then he lost, you know, he sort of passed through that. I mean, that, to me, that just doesn't make sense what we believe about the personhood of Christ. No. Okay, I'll, we'll do that. That's great. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, all right, let's, let's move into identity. I think this, um, we, could, we could go on for quite a while with the impeccability discussion. So the, the topic um, of this ninth statement is the, on, on identity. And so I want to just give some thoughts before we really work through that, that statement. Um, that, and those thoughts are there at the beginning of your, um, of your um, handout. The first question I have is what do we mean by that word identity? Um, it's important to point out that that word identity is a very recent idea and concept um, in human history, um, particularly the idea that we have an identity that we explore and um, articulate and define um, for ourselves. Um, um, that's a very recent kind of modern innovation um, that we have to sort of figure out who we are um, and, 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 and decide upon our identity, how we identify ourselves, right? Um, even the, the word and concept came into the English language only in the last, I mean, it was there in the mid-1800s, um, but um, then came into the English language in, in, um, in the way that it's used today um, as people try to, you know, discern their identity um, uh, or understand their identity um, or, or they can have an identity in their, their job or their family or whatever. That kind of language only entered the English, langu English language in the 1950s um, through this um, psychiatrist, Eric Erickson, whose work you can um, look up. His, his really famous um, entry into this is actually um, a book that he wrote on the way in which Martin, his belief that Martin Luther's conception of his own identity is what spurred um, the, the Protestant Reformation. So he had this theory that Luther had this really difficult relationship with his father um, that, that, that became a sort of, you know, um, placeholder for God and the way that he wrestled through that led him ultimately to grace and, and it was through Luther's own sort of wrestling with his identity that 
the Protestant Reformation was born. There's this famous book that explores that um, concept. Um, it's, I think it's important to point out that the word, there's no Greek or Hebrew equivalent to the word identity as we use it today. Um, it just doesn't exist. It's, it's not part of the parlance of the scriptures, um, which is fine. We can certainly do theology with words that are not in the scriptures. Um, Trinity, of course, doesn't appear in the scriptures, um, but it's just important to know that, right? The scripture doesn't really speak explicitly to this question of identity in the modern concept, the way that we use it um, so frequently today. Um, there's no Hebrew or Greek equivalent that even existed in the language at the time uh, the scriptures were written. Um, and this history of sexual identities is even more recent, and that's, of course, why uh, that this topic is being explored in the context of the sexuality report is because of the way in which our sexual identities um, are a part of the, the, the world in which we live, you know, you, and the way in which people can have a, a gender identity that's different than their, um, their sex that they received at birth, or they can express a sexual identity, which can be all sorts of things, not only heterosexual or homosexual, but all other kinds of, um, um, you know, desires and intentions. Um, you know, you can be bisexual, you can be etc etc um, all sorts of different things um, and th this becomes your identity this is who you are and, and there's this impulse um, I think in our culture to say part of what you need to do is figure out who you are right that's a burden I think a, a cruel burden that is laid upon our young people these days um, to to figure out what their identity is um, who is it that you actually are um, but it's important to say that that none of this existed even in the the language of um, not just English language, but just generally in the languages of humanity. The words heterosexual and homosexual were invented in the mid-19th century. Um, before that, um, certainly people understood homosexual acts, right? That there were um, um, acts that were homosexual in nature. Um, but the, uh, this idea that a person could be identified as a homosexual or heterosexual only came around in the mid-1800s. Um, and I think that's really interesting to think about, and, and those words are only common, began to be commonly used um, in the 20th century. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I am, uh, I think we should have a somewhat suspicious posture toward the usefulness of um, words that, that claim to describe our sexual identities in that way. Um, there's a great um, essay, fascinating essay, that was written um, eight years ago in First Things, which is a Christian journal named Michael Hannon that, that was entitled Against Heterosexuality. And um, I've read it multiple times over the last decade and I've always found it really interesting and insightful and provocative. I read it again this week preparing um, for um, our Sunday school class today. And essentially what he argues is that um, we should just reject entirely all the language of sexual identity, that, that the goal is not to, you know, the problem is not only the, the label homosexual, um, heterosexual is also an un unhelpful label, and that it truncates our identity into um, the kinds of sexual desires that we experience. It's a reduction of the human self. Um, and it also creates, um, well, it, it just puts people into boxes in ways that are not helpful. Um, it, it reduces our humanity. And um, he just basically argues, you know, we, sh we shouldn't use the language of heterosexual or homosexual to identify ourselves, but rather we should say we're just persons um, who have all have sinful sexual desires that we um, need to be made holy in. 
um, and that that's a better way. And I, I'm I'm sympathetic to his argument, and I think I would commend that essay to you. It's a you know fairly long and um, dense essay, but it's worth reading. Um, G.K. Chesterton um, in Orthodoxy he wrote this. I think this speaks to this question of identity. If we're going to use the idea of identity, um, we have to realize um, some of the perils and challenges um, um, with it. Um, Chesterton says, every man has forgotten who he is. Um, One may understand the cosmos, but never the ego. The self is more distant than the star. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, but thou shalt not know thyself. Um, we are all under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our names. We all have all forgotten what we really are. And I think that is one of the problems when we start to think about identity as something that we should construct and figure out for ourselves is that um, we're not really capable of that. That's not how it's supposed to work. Um, our understanding of ourselves is not supposed to come from within us, within our own des- from our own desires, our own sense of what is good or right or what we love even, um, because we don't really know ourselves and, and, and we can't really know ourselves. There's a mystery um, even between us and our own selves that, that makes it difficult to define um, ourselves in, a, in some sort of way that identifies who we are. Um, that's, a, that's an impossible burden um, for us. Um, there's this great book that it really explores this issue um, by a man named Alan Noble, um, who's a PCA. Uh, member, layperson, um, but also a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University, um, an English professor there. He's, I've, I've read Noble's books, um, multiple ones of his books. He's a really fascinating thinker and speaker um, and would commend his work to you. He wrote this book called You Are Not Your Own um, that was published in the last year, um, and I would just highly recommend it to you um, if this is these are concepts and ideas that you're interested in thinking about more um, deeply, um, basically, um, Noble's argument, and we're going to read an excerpt um, in a moment that that gives a little bit of his argument. Basically, his argument is that um, the story um, of modern the modern world is that you belong to yourself, right? You belong to yourself, um, and that this is what's driving everyone crazy, basically, in our culture. Is this idea that um, that you don't belong to someone else, you belong to yourself, and you have to figure out what that self is and, and what it needs and, um, you know, how it should live. And, and it's, um, it's crazy, right? It's, it's really insane to live that way. But that's, that's what modern culture is doing for us. And his argument using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism is that um, we should not believe the modern lie that we belong to ourselves, but rather... Um, a Christian understanding is that we belong to God, um, that you are not your own, but you belong body and soul to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, and that, that is that idea of belonging to someone else, um, that your identity comes to you to the extent that we can even use that word identity. It's something that comes from the outside, right? It's something given to you. It's not something that you construct or figure out or discern. Um, so really great book. He's He's an easy writer to read. He's not um, overly dense or academic, um, would really commend him to you. Um, so Noble writes, you have this excerpt on your handout. He says, if I am my own and belong to myself, so he's trying to spin out that idea, um, 
then I must define who, quote, I am. My parents can name me and the government can issue me a social security number, but only I can decide my identity. And I think that's just inherent in, in um, modern culture, that idea. The contemporary understanding of humanity decrees that each of us has the freedom and the responsibility to define that identity. I think that language is really important. What our culture says is not only do you have the freedom to do this, but you must do it. It's your responsibility. If you are going to be a, a true person, you have to discover who you are and, and, and share that with the world. Right? That's, that's what it means to be a true um, mature um, human being in our age. He says, think about this. The basic story we tell ourselves in the modern world is of self-discovery, right? Our films, novels, and TV shows repeatedly follow the story of a protagonist who longs to know who they truly are, to uncover their authentic self, to throw off the expectations of fathers, teachers, and the rest of society to follow their own path. Um, he says, pick virtually any Disney animated film of the last three decades, right? Have you all seen Frozen, right? This is the plot of Frozen, right? Um, and, and any number of other um, Disney animated films. And, and, it's, and that's important because who watches those films? Children, right? Kids watch those films. Um, and, and I just want to introduce the idea that even if uh, a film or a, a piece of art doesn't have, you know, explicit sort of sexual content or um, violence or whatever you might be trying to protect your kids from. Um, every piece of art has a worldview, has an argument, has an understanding of <laughs> what's true and good and beautiful. And uh, I'm not saying nobody should watch Disney films, but I'm saying you should think about that, right? That this is, he's right, like this is the basic plot of every single movie that Disney has produced for children in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, right? That you have to figure out who you are and no one understands who you are and your goal in life is to, is to let you know, your little self shine um, in the world. And if you do that, then, then everything is wonderful. And, and, and man, that's a lot to put on our kids, you know? Um, that they're responsible to do that and no one else can tell them who they are. And parents are not trustworthy guides and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? That's just a lot. Just let's, I think we should think about that. Um, pick virtually any Disney animated film of the last three decades or any number of recent dramas about defying gender or sexual norms. And here's, I think he nails it here. We might even say that self-discovery is our contemporary hero's journey, right? Um, you know, we used to write epics about people um, who, who did things, right? You know, the, the Aeneid is about the founding of Rome, right? Um, um, you know, the, the Odyssey is about um, Odysseus's return um, back home after the Trojan War. Um, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings is about, um, you know, saving the world and, and um, you know, destroying a magic ring. Um, now, the epic sort of journey of the hero is the journey of the self, right? It's the journey of self-understanding and self-expression and um, really figuring out um, our authentic selves. And, and that's, that's just, it's important to note that, that that's a, that's a movement that has happened in our culture, um, not only in Disney films, but all over um, the kind of media, um, the kind of art, the kind of cinema um, that we consume and, 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 and enjoy. Um, and those things shape us in terms of telling us what it means to live an authentically human life, what it means to be um, wise and, and true and, and mature.
Does that make sense? You have any thoughts about any of that? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. You know, the fascinating thing about that, too, so, so um, Kim was talking about the identity crisis, quote-unquote, that Aragorn has in The Lord of the Rings. I would, I would argue, it's been a very long time since I've seen the films, but um, as, <laughs> as we've discussed before, but, <laughs> but, um, but I would argue that that concept of that identity crisis is far more prevalent in the film than it is in the book. Um, that it's something that um, that Jackson introduced in Viggo Mortensen or whatever, you know, like not introduce whole cloth. There, are, there's the kind of seeds of that tension that he feels about um, his true identity as the king um, who returns. But, but I think it becomes much more of a theme in the in the in the film than it is in the books, which I think speaks to the point I'm making. Do you know what I mean? Even that idea that this is. Yes, it is different from other, right, yes, because it's something that's coming to him from the outside, right, that's right, it's, it's more about his willingness to accept the mantle of responsibility that, that is his, um, that's right, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that that does that identity come from the outside, or is that something that we have to construct for ourselves? Um, that we're not only free to construct for ourselves, but we must. If it if it is to be authentic, I think the argument is, it has to come from within you, right? No one else can tell you who you are, or what you should do, or or what you should love, or whatever. I, I, it's interesting to continue to think about this dynamic, um, the death of Queen Elizabeth, right? Um, in the last week or so, a couple weeks. Um, I think she's a really fascinating example of this. Um, she's obviously one who very self-consciously self gave herself over to the identity of being um, a royal sovereign um, for her kingdom and for the, the um, commonwealths that were part of her rule. Um, and it's very, I think part of the, the, the power of Elizabeth's life is that she, subs she was subsumed in some sense by that identity. Right, she became the queen. She did not have a kind of personal um, life outside of that. Right, um, and I think you know, depending on how closely you followed the twists and turns of the British royal family, you can see that um, that her children and grandchildren um, have not necessarily all followed in that. You know, they there's this increasing sense of like, no, we're people, and we need to be people, and, and if I'm going to be a happy person, I have to have an identity outside of, you know, just being this, um, the king or the prince or whatever it is, and, and fascinatingly, it seems like, I don't, I'm not an expert in these things, but it seems like British culture is pushing it that way, right? We want a, we want a sovereign who is relatable to us. We want someone who's just like us. We want someone who, you know, we can identify with, um, 
And so it's just really interesting to think about how these things are just working themselves out in all sorts of ways in, in the broader culture. Yeah, Kim. Right, and right, there is an inconsistency there. Right. Yeah, the, the modern, the contemporary British culture seems, they, they, lo they loved Elizabeth, but they don't seem to understand why they did. Do you know what I mean? Um, why they actually, she was actually a good queen. Um, and who knows what will happen to the conception of uh, British royalty in the years to come. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yeah, I love that. Yeah, so Donovan's saying that he's reading this book on liturgy, and and um, and as the people of God, we don't find our identities in um, our sin or our rebellion against God, but in the fact that we are the redeemed, that we're the holy ones, that we're the saints, and that's yeah, and that's one of the great um, pedagogical benefits of I think a liturgy, um, a strong liturgy. And that's part of why we have in our liturgy a strong declaration of forgiveness um, from the pastor um, every week um, who acts um, as a representative of Jesus Christ all throughout the liturgy, but in some ways particularly in that moment. Um, and, and I say to you, or Jeff says to you, um, that your sins are indeed forgiven. And this is who you are. Um, you're a holy person. You're not defined um, by the confession of sin that you just made. Um, your identity actually comes from outside of you and is placed upon you and given to you in an authoritative, objective way. And that's right. And, and baptism, of course, and that's what baptism is, um, we would say. Um, it is um, God's name being placed on us from the outside, and, and that's why I have that essay in the foyer called Remember Your Baptism, because you're remembering um, who you are um, <laughs> because who you are has been already told you um, by Christ in your baptism. You don't have to go out and discover it. You just have to remember um, the word that has been placed upon you um, in the sacrament. All right, let's, let's move through this um, statement. Um, I think we've done a lot of groundwork here. I think this is going to be pretty straightforward. Um, we affirm that the believer's most important identity is found in Christ, they say. Um, for my money, that's probably not as strong as I would put it. Um, that statement... <laughs> leaves the idea that, you know, if it's the most important identity, then, <laughs> then what are they in saying implicitly? <laughs> there are other identities, right? Um, and I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know, man. I mean, we're all sort of in like Wild West land here because, like I said, none of this language appears in the scriptures anyway. Um, but, but I don't know that I would like, I don't know if I would say it that way. I might put it a little stronger. Um, I, I Yes, anyway, so just, I would just say that. Um, I understand, you know, maybe there's some, you know, if you say we affirm that the believer's soul identity is found in Christ, I probably could live with that. Um, I understand there might be people that would push back against that and say, no, we, we need to make sure that we're still male and female and, you know, all these different other things. And yeah, that's true, but I, are those really identities? I, I don't know, in the way that we're using that term.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's an example. Right, to, to be made the image of God. Sure, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so they go on to say, Christians ought to understand themselves, define themselves, and describe themselves in light of their union with Christ and their identity as regenerate, justified, holy children of God. Um, I um, So I think, I think you can see what they're trying to say there, right? Um, again, I would probably push back some against, I still feel like there's this emphasis being put on understanding yourself, defining yourself, describing yourself that I don't love, right? I don't want to put that onus on people. Um, um, and maybe they're just acknowledging that people are going to do this anyway. And so if, as you do it, this is how you should do it. Um, I would love to just, I guess what I'm trying to say is I would love to, to just reconstruct the whole thing you know, and, and, and really think more deeply about this language of identity um, before we just accept it. But if we're going to accept it, I think this is right. Um, that Christians ought to understand themselves, define themselves, and describe themselves in light of their union with Christ and their identity as regenerate, justified, holy children of God, which speaks to the point um, that you're making, Donovan, um, a few minutes ago. And then they go on to say, to juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires alongside the term Christian is inconsistent with biblical language and undermines the spiritual reality that we are new creations in Christ. Um, so what they're trying to protect against there is the way in which people can define themselves. I mean, obviously this is um, rooted in um, debates over um, sexual issues, right? Concerns about sexuality. And so what they're trying to protect them, protect people against there is to say, you shouldn't, if you understand yourself to be an, a homosexual um, for example, um, that's problematic to juxtapose that identity that's rooted in sinful desires a long term, alongside the term Christian, um, to say I'm a homosexual Christian, for example. Now, again, like I said earlier, I would raise questions about identifying yourself as a heterosexual Christian. Um, um, <laughs> you know, um, I think that there are problems with that that are not helpful. Um, so, but... Do you understand the point that they're making there? I, I, I don't think I agree. I, I understand what they're saying, inconsistent with biblical language to some extent. The word homosexual, as we understand it today, doesn't, um, or homosexuality doesn't exist in the scriptures, right? They're only homosexual acts. Um, they're not homosexual people um, in the scriptures. Um, and undermines the spiritual reality that we are new creations in Christ. Um, I, I, don't, I think that language is less precise than I would want it to be. Um, if we are new creations in Christ, you know, how we talk about ourselves can't undermine that objective reality. That, that reality has to be objective. Does that make sense? Like, you, you can't change it. You can't call yourself something different and, and do something to that reality. Uh, maybe it confuses that reality, we could say. I, I think undermines is a bit strong in terms of our capacity to change the spiritual reality, the reality that's been affected by the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. So, um, just a little background. I was diagnosed with cancer when I was six. Okay. I'm 36 now, almost 37. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Mm-hmm. I am God. Mm-hmm. I, I don't belong to myself. I belong to God. Mm-hmm. Right? His thoughts. Mm-hmm. Not my own. Mm-hmm. And it's still that struggle. You know, something so deep and heavy as being this survivor and struggling with that of not being myself. Right. You know? Yeah, well, I, th- I think the tension you're describing is a common one. I think yeah. whatever the experience is that ways that we've been marked in this world by um, the fallenness of this world, whether it's um, cancer, whether it's some other uh, physical malady or handicap, whether it's um, ways that folks have sinned against us, um, ways that we've been abused or harmed, um, ways that we've, uh, all of those things can mark us. And, and, and we um, certainly, there's, and I think particularly in the cultural milieu in which we live, there is this pressure to understand ourselves as the sum of whatever those experiences are, right? And we define ourselves as, um, yeah, as a, as a survivor, as you put it, or some other name that we might put on ourselves. And yeah, that tension of I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to Jesus Christ. I think that is the, the movement of the Christian discipleship is is understanding to the extent we understand ourselves to have an identity for it to be defined for us by Christ um, and his His work on our behalf, his union with us. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's great. Appreciate you sharing that. Um, so they say, nevertheless, being, and, and we could also, I think, just to say this last sentence, to juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires, homosexual is not the only thing that could fill that blank, right? I pointed out that heterosexual might be problematic, but um, you think about ways, and I do have concerns about, um, and I know this is a sensitive topic, but um, here we go. Um, In recovery movement, right, 12-step program, um, there's this idea that um, if you're going to do that and be in it, um, you're you're an alcoholic or you're an addict, um, and that's who you are. In some, uh, like I've never been on the inside of those programs, but this is my perception as someone on the outside that that's a big part of the the deal. Um, that that you know, hi, I'm X, I'm an alcoholic, and you say that if you've been 40 years sober, right, and you you're but but if you're still going to AA, that's how you identify yourself. I'm X, I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I, I think, I think that speaks to some of the tensions that are inherent here, right? Does that, do you really want to define yourself in that way? Um, um, is that really your identity? I, I, I just think there are, con- there are, can you see those concerns, like those tensions? Um, and I'm, I'm not convinced that that's a great way to describe yourself, um, a great identity for you to own. Um, so. I know that might be a controversial statement, but I offer it as something to think about. While Christian, so, so they, but they say, nevertheless, and I agree with this, nevertheless, being honest about our sin struggles is important. I mean, you all hear me talk about confessing your sin and being honest about the things that you um, really struggle with. But I would say that doesn't necessarily mean that's who you are, right? 
Um, being honest about your sin doesn't mean um, that you're, you know, that that sin is your identity or who you are as a person. Um, while Christians should not identify with their sin so as to embrace it or seek to base their identity on it, Christians ought to acknowledge their sin in an effort to overcome it. Um, there's a difference between speaking about a phenomenal, phenomenological, phenomenological facet of a person's sin-stained reality and employing the language of sinful desires as a personal identity marker. In case you haven't used the word phenomenological recently, that basically just means observable experience, right? Um, things that you experience in the world you can observe about yourself. Um, so basically, there's a difference between speaking about your experience of your sin-stained reality and employing the language of sinful desires um, as a personal identity marker. One could even make the argument that the word experience could work there right, as a replacement. Um, so to, to try to make this distinction, right, that, that while we're concerned about people who people constructing identities for themselves out of um, sinful desires um, and, and noting that I'm just suspicious about the whole construction of identity in general. Um, th what they're trying to say is you, you still need to be able to talk about your sins, but you should do so in a way that doesn't, the, those sins don't begin to constitute who you are as a person in your own understanding. Do, do you see what they're trying to say there? Does that make sense? That is, and I think this is a helpful, what's that? Don't make it your personality. Yeah, don't make it, right. That is, we name our sins, they say, but we're not named by them. I think that's a helpful um, descriptor or, or maybe a simpler way to put it. Um, we name our sins, but we're not named by them. Um, and then this last um, paragraph, and we can talk about this for a minute. Moreover, we recognize that there are some secondary identities while not rooted in, when not rooted in sinful desires or struggles against the flesh can be legitimately, legitimately affirmed along with our primary identity as Christians. For example, the distinctions between male and female or between various nationalities and people groups are not eradicated in becoming Christians but serve to magnify the glory of God and his plan of salvation. Um, I am not sure I love putting those identities like saying our identity in Christ is, you know, a, I, I just don't know if we should use the same word for identity as Christ as our sex, but that, there we are. Um, yes, ma'am, Alyssa. They're not definitional, definitional in the way that our identity in Christ is, I would say, yeah. You know what I mean? They, they, don't, they don't define us um, in the same kind of fundamental way. I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, yeah, that I think we have to have some kind of distinction between the way that those identities 
I don't think it's sufficient just to say our, identif our identity in Christ is our primary identity and these are secondary ones. I would want to just say, well, they're really different things. Do you know what I mean? It's not just that, that my belonging to Christ is the most important identity to ha that I have. That's a fundamentally different thing than the fact that I'm a male or I'm a father or that I'm a pastor or whatever. Is that, or is that what you're saying? Yeah. Are we saying similar things? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah, James. Yes. Um, yes. Um, name that you've given to yourself That's a great point, James. So James is pointing out that, that one of the, the downsides of using identity language, whether it's in a recovery group or um, some other format, is that you essentially begin to only, um, there's this temptation to believe that I can only relate to people who are like me, who are alcoholics, who are um, X, you know, who, and that, that's, that's right. And I, I've wrestled with this. I mean, I do think there's great things about um, the recovery movement, um, but certainly there is a danger if 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 you feel like that that becomes your whole life, right? Your 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 only community is um, other people who are struggling with alcoholism or with addiction. Um, and I've even begun to wonder, you know, I've shared with the y'all the fact that um, when I was first ordained 14 years ago, I helped lead a support group for several years for men who all struggled with homosexual desires um, and I, I even now looking back on that experience I wonder about that like I think there were good things about you know getting those 10 or 12 men in a room each week and letting them talk to each other and and guiding that discussion and but there is a danger of that too in that it can become a, a very um, and this can be this isn't just true about men struggling with homosexual sin it can be you know whatever it is it can be men struggling with pornography or or some, whatever the thing is, right? Um, there can be a, a, a danger of, of that being a limiting factor in terms of maturity and growth. Um, and, 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 and I wonder now if it would not be better for men in that situation um, to just be part of a small group of other men where, yeah, sure, sexual sin is something that's talked about and they have the freedom to talk about their sexual sin alongside men who have different, um, sexual temptations, um, but it's not just about sex, right? It's about, you know, whatever else. Um, it's about, um, you know, following Jesus and 
in all of your life. And I, I do wonder about that. I think that's a great point, James, is what I'm saying. I think, I think you're onto something there. Um, I also wonder if the, this statement, all these discussions about identity have wrestled, and maybe the committee wrestled deeply enough with um, the end of Galatians 3. Um, in Galatians 3, 26 to 28, or yeah, 26 to 28, um, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And that language is intentional, right? He, he knows that there are women that whom he's writing, um, but he calls them all sons. And the New Testament uses this language all the time, um, right? And, and it's not because it's sexist or whatever. Um, it's because it's saying you've all become united to Jesus. And so in that sense, you're all sons because you're all united to the sons. It doesn't matter what your sex is. Um, you're all sons of God. Um, and that, the new, it's all over the place. They use that language. Um, Paul uses that language. And it says, Paul goes on to say in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he says, there is neither, or some translations say, there is no longer, right? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, now, Paul is not saying there that we cease to be men or women or Jews or Greeks or um, slave or free um, in our union with Jesus. Um, but I think he is saying something about the way in which what it means to belong to God in Christ is fundamentally different than all other kinds of things that are might be true about us. And that's, that's really where I want to even push um, the language of the study committee there and say, I don't, I don't, I think we just should think deeply about how we even use this language of identity, um, just generally, um, if we're going to do justice to the scriptures. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's something I would encourage us to think about. Any other thoughts or questions in the minute or two we have? Yeah, Donovan. Yeah, you can choose, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, it can tend to, um, it tend to, tend to tempt us to excuse our sin, right, because this is who I am, that kind of idea. Yep. Wired that way. Absolutely. Um, I think there's also dangers of, you know, like, you know, there, I'm a, I'm an abstaining Christian, right? I'm a, I'm a sober Christian, whatever. Um, there's, there are maybe even more insidious, um, <laughs> temptations along with that around pride and you know what I mean like looking down on people who are not um, like you um, so yeah no that's right I think there are temptations there yeah Trudy um, I think that's fine I mean I think we have to be able to talk about ourselves as sinners in terms of our experience in the world right but I do think we want to say that our fundamental identity is not um, that I'm a sinner, it's that I've been, I belong to Christ, um, that I'm holy. Um, and this is why it is fascinating to think about, right, the, new, the Pauline and other New Testament epistles never address, to my recollection at least, off the top of my head, um, the people of God as sinners, right? To the sinners who are in Ephesus, right? 
right? Um, I mean, right, I mean, it's kind of laughable, right? You, you can't really imagine them using that language. They say every time, right, to the saints, right, to the saints. And that word saints um, is just the Greek word that means holy ones, right, to the ones who are holy. Um, that's probably a more literal, you know, in terms of our, how we use that word, um, you know, to the ones who are holy in Ephesus. That's, that's, that's the language of the apostles used for the church again and again when they're addressed directly um, by those men who Christ appointed to, to pastor them and care for them. And I think that's something worth us thinking about um, as in terms of how we use language to describe ourselves. Any other thoughts? We've got one minute. Kim, get the last word. Yes, ma'am. Serve identity? I don't know. I don't know that I have a good solution. I just feel like I'm not happy with it. Um, that's a good question. Kim's asking what word I use instead of identity. Um, Scott has the answer. That's great. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take that bait. That's a trap. All right. Let's uh, let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for um, the truth that we are not our own. That we do not belong to ourselves. Heaven help us, Father. We're grateful that that is not true, um, that, but that we belong um, body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, may we wrestle um, with that truth, even as we think about the world in which we live and all the ways that we're tempted um, to give names to ourselves or to understand ourselves. Um, Father, may we come back again and again to this reality that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.